As I said before, we are continuing our series in the book of Luke. So if you want to open up your Bibles or open up your apps to Luke 16. So uh, last summer, a student told me that he was going to be a camp counselor. And he said that at his denomination's camp, they have a list of disputable topics that they tell their counselors, you know, don't talk about these things with the students who are coming. And you can see some wisdom in that. But he told me that one of the topics they had just recently added to the list of disputable topics was the topic of hell. They weren't supposed to talk about hell with the students who had come to their camp that summer. So you might ask, a disputable topic? As in, like, it's real or it's not, or or maybe the Bible talks about it or it doesn't? We're not really sure? You know, I'm not sure about that particular camp, but I know in my heart, when we, we address the topic of hell, I want to put it on a list of disputable matters because it's such a terrible and horrible thought. I'd rather have the option of not thinking about it. Wayne Grudem, a Bible teacher, says this. He says, if our hearts are never moved with deep sorrow when we contemplate this doctrine, then there is a serious deficiency in our spiritual and emotional sensibilities. This morning, we are continuing, like I said, through Luke, and we cannot avoid the topic of hell because Jesus talks about it very plainly here in Luke 16 and a little bit in Luke 17. So we can't ignore it, and we need to pay attention. If you can see on the outline, the title is called The Warning of Hell. When Jesus was teaching He was uh, talking to his disciples, and Tom brought us through this last week up to verse 13 of chapter 16. And there were some people listening. If you look at verse 14, the Pharisees were sitting in and listening, and they had some trouble with what Jesus was teaching. And so Jesus directs his attention to them and starts teaching to them. That takes us through the end of chapter 16. And then it picks up in 17 where he turns his attention back to the disciples. And so let me read our scripture here together this morning. And uh, it's a long passage. And then we will cover it in three points, as you can see on the outline. Uh, also, can someone put the, the outline link in the chat? I still don't see that. Thank you. Chapter 16 of Luke, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman from her husband or marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores, who desired to be fed for what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received the good thing, your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they, may, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards will you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to say, when all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If you look at the outline, we are going to cover this in three sections. The warning for all, the warning of torment, and the warn or heeding the warning, which is living by faith. So our first point, the warning for all. Whenever I uh, read this section of scripture, I tend not to associate chapter 16 with chapter 17. I, I tend to see that hard break between the end of 16 and that those big one seven numbers in the Bible. Uh, but there is a corollary between these two sections. So Jesus at the end of 16 is talking to the Pharisees about the danger of, of unrepented sin and not living by faith or believing his word. And then Jesus talks to the disciples in 17 with a similar warning of, of a similar dire warning if they do not listen to his words and repent. So this message, this warning is for all. It's for the, for the opponents of Jesus and for the followers 
of Jesus. So let's look at both of these audiences. If you would look at verse 14 of chapter 16. Again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. These are religious leaders, and they were obviously listening in. And it says, when they heard these things, they ridiculed Jesus. Literally, it says, they turned their nose up on him. That's what it means. So they're sneering at him. And the author tells us that they loved money and valued being well off. And this was the source of the tension because Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And so Jesus reminds them in 15 that God knows what's going on on the inside in their hearts. And they have got it so wrong at the end of verse 15. They prize what God hates. If you look down in 16 to 18, uh, you might, uh, if you're reading the, the stories kind of connect from the beginning of 16 to the story with the rich man and the poor man. Uh, because it's talking about money and, and helping other people. And you might think, well, 16 to 18, how does that fit in? Because it seems to a little be, be a little bit of a, a speed bump. And so uh, here, here's how it fits in, is that Jesus is, is criticizing them for not listening to what the scriptures say. And he's trying to say, look, I'm not taking away from anything that's been written. You guys have actually not been paying attention. And he even gives a case example there in, in 18 of, you even play fast and loose with marriage and divorce. And then he goes into his uh, story, which is a condemnation of their own hearts. So this is setting the scene for the warning for his opponents. Now, what about his followers? If you want to look over at verse seven, or chapter 17, verse 1, it says he was talking to the disciples. You would expect Jesus to condemn and have hard words and his opponents to have hard words or have a hard time with him, but you probably wouldn't expect that with the disciples, would you? Verse two, Jesus says that it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and cast into the sea, this gruesome picture of drowning while consciously alive and knowing that it's happening, it would be better than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Again, uh, he's talking to his own disciples. And we see that they had a bit of trouble with this. If you look down at verse 5, they say, increase our faith. This, this exclamation of this, there is a big deal going on here. And they understand that it is a big deal. So both opponents and followers of Jesus have some trouble or uneasiness with this teaching. And Jesus is warning them that unless they repent, unless they listen to him, they are set up to find themselves excluded from God and in torment. How do we think about applying this point? The main application here in this first point that I want you to consider is to think of yourself. I know when we talk about, as Christians, we might talk about the topic of hell, and you might be tempted to think, oh, I wish so-and-so we're here to hear this, or this message is for these other people. Let me quote to you C.S. Lewis. He says this, In all the discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, not of our friends, but of ourselves. This warning applies to you and to me. 
as well as everybody else. And this is why Jesus says in verse 3 of chapter 17, when he's talking to his disciples, watch yourselves. Do you hold out the possibility that you and your soul are in danger? That your, your life is heading in the wrong direction, even if you go to church and do these things? Is hell a topic for other people? Is it a disputable matter in your heart? Do not miss the point. And do not easily blow it off. Because if Jesus said to his own disciples that they needed to pay attention and watch out, then we do too. This warning is for all. And it's not a disputable matter. Jesus is pretty clear when we examine this warning of torment in these two stories. So let's move on to our second point. And look at that warning in more detail. In verses 19 to 31 of chapter 16, Jesus is giving this story of a rich man and a poor man and the interactions. So let's look at, uh, make some observations of these two guys. In verse 19, he starts off by talking about the rich man. He says that he's rich. He says that he's clothed in purple and fine linen which indicates this guy had a lot of money and he bought the best clothes. He feasts sumptuously every day, it says, every day. Uh, another way to, to translate this is that he celebrated with ostentation. So he's, he's showing off with how much money he has and how much food he can buy and eat. And in verse 20, it says that, that there's a gate at his house. So he has, he has enough money to have a gate and a desire here to keep people out and, and block the people he doesn't want to come into his house. That's the rich man. We don't even know his name. But when we turn to the poor man, the poor man does have a name. His name is Lazarus. And what do we learn about him? We learn that he's covered in sores. And in verse 21, what is his desire? His desire is not to even go into this guy's house and eat at his table and get a taste of some of that good food. It says that he wants to even, he just desires to eat what falls from the guy's table. Like even the table scraps are good enough for this guy. And that's what he's dreaming about. And, and, and not only is this guy sort of in a, in a sorry position with these sores and at the end of 21, it says that dogs are coming and licking this guy's sores. So it's, it's a, it's a terrible picture of the suffering guy outside of the door of this rich man. Uh, and then also it says that he was laid at this guy's gate. So presumably, Whoever laid him there thought, hey, this guy's rich. He'll be able to help our poor friend. Well, both of these men die in the story. Uh, Lazarus, the poor man, is carried to Abraham's side. He's welcomed into heaven. If you remember last week, Jesus said to use uh, your money and your possessions so that you can gain a welcome into heavenly dwellings. This guy is welcomed into heavenly dwellings versus the rich man who finds himself in, verse 23, in Hades, which is the place of the dead. Uh, there's a whole thing we can go into of the sort of the nature of hell, but I am actually just summarizing it all as as hell and, and torment. But he's there in Hades, and he's in torment, and he says that he's in a fire at the end of verse 24. Now, this is shocking because uh, he says, Father Abraham... Now, to Jesus' audience, this indicates that this guy was a Jew. 
So he was a well-off Jew, the person that, that you would least expect to find up in hell. And so this is a very alarming that an insider dies and wakes up in hell to find themselves in torment. Now, it's also important to note that with these two guys that, and even Abraham in the story, there is a consciousness that is happening in this interplay. So it's not just like you're annihilated after death or you're some kind of this unconscious, tormented spirit. Uh, but this is very well aware uh, and consciously aware of what is happening and the torment that they're facing or the joy and comfort that the uh, the poor man is facing. So basically, they know where they're at. So what is Jesus focusing on on this story? So from here on out, he focuses in on what the rich man who's in hell, what does he want? And there are two main things that he wants that Jesus focuses on. The first one is that he wants relief. Verse uh, 24, he wants Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and come into hell to give it to him. Notice how similar it is to the reversal. It's similar to when Lazarus was alive. Lazarus wanted the table scraps and he wanted the guy to come out to help him. Now the rich man in hell wants to command Lazarus to come out of heaven into hell to give him a drop of water, just a drop of water. So Abraham responds and he says, Hey, uh, verse 25, basically this was just, you had rich things or you were rich. You had all these good things. Uh, and, and you didn't do anything. And Lazarus had a poor life and now he's comforted. And then verse 26, besides all of that, he says, there is a great chasm that you cannot cross. So we can't go to you and you can't come to us. Or in other words, you're there and there's no chance of escape. So the guy realizes this, his, his, his desire for relief is just not going to happen. So that leads us to the second thing that he wants, which is that he wants to warn others. Look at verse 27. He says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Again, he wants to command Lazarus to do things, even in hell. But he does have a sense of, a little bit of sense of compassion that he wants to warn his other family members. Verse 28, I have five brothers. And it's interesting in 29 that Abraham doesn't say, well, this one is impossible. Remember, he said there's a great chasm, so it's impossible to do that first request. He doesn't say that for the second request, but he does say it's not going to work. I mean, this, that's a fine plan, but it's not going to work. And he says the reason why is because even if someone goes to them from the dead, they're not going to listen. They didn't even listen to the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, all the scripture, all of God's word. They hadn't listened to that. So a resurrection, a miracle, that's not going to do it. It's just not going to work. And so the story ends there. One man in torment, one man in comfort. Looking at this particular story, uh, let's examine what we can learn from this one before moving on to chapter 17. In this warning of torment, there are two things that I think we should learn. The first one is that the rich man had a chance, he had a choice to heed the warning. Jesus makes it 
uh, pretty clear that this man had a choice. You know, he, he had got a dying guy on his gate outside of his house. He was so rich having all these parties while the guy is dying at his doorstep and he chose to do nothing. Again, C.S. Lewis says this, a man can't be taken to hell or sent to hell. You can get only get there on your own steam. In fact, every moment of this guy's life, he had the chance to repent and do the right thing, but he didn't. And he's saying to Abraham in this story, once my brothers find out, they will repent. And he kind of implies that he didn't have enough information. Remember, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about a Jewish man who finds himself in hell. And Abraham points out again that the problem wasn't lack of, of miracles or lack of information. There are plenty of verses in the Old Testament that talk about caring for your neighbor. And in this story, this guy obviously had ignored those. Just two examples to put on your radar. Luke, or I'm sorry, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verses 16 says this, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. And then two verses later is the famous verse Jesus quotes. You must love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. So these Pharisees, Jesus is condemning them because they're not obeying the scriptures. And perhaps just like this guy in the story, they're choosing to love money and self over loving God and their neighbor. So that's the first thing that we can learn is that there is a choice. There is a chance to avoid this fate. The second thing from this story I think we can learn is that we get an inside picture into what people in hell desire. So just like this story, we see that people want relief. Verse 28, he calls it a place of torment. And, and in verse 26, there's this chasm. There's no way in and there's no way out. They are stuck there in a place of torment forever. And they want to get out. But they can't. They can't get out. So what's the second thing that they want? What's their second desire? Hell has got their attention, has gotten this guy's attention, but, but it's too late. So what else do they want? They want to warn other people. Don't come here. Don't miss this warning. Consider your life right now. You do not want to come here. In verse 30, the guy says, my brothers need to repent if they hear this. That's what they need to do. Consider this. This is very sobering. Consider souls in hell right now. And what would they say to you? What would they say to me? Don't come here. Do whatever it takes to avoid this eternal fate. Jesus is not only talking 
to his opponents and warning them. If we look at verse <clears throat> chapter 17, again, he's talking to his own disciples. We won't spend as much time on this as we did on the other story. But if you look at verse 2, <clears throat> the illustration is one, uh, a gruesome one, an alarming one. Jesus said that temptations to sin are there and they are real. And he said it would be better to have this gruesome picture happen to you of, of this giant rock tied around your neck and you're thrown in the water and you know that you're drowning than to cause a little one to sin. Jesus says it would be better, whatever, how gruesome and awful that is, it would be better than that. Like, like in other words, the judgment is worse than that word picture. We're not really sure exactly what uh, Jesus means by the little ones here at the end of verse 2. In Mark and in, in Matthew, he's talking about children in the corollary story. Uh, he could be talking about children here. Uh, but in context, it does seem like it it it, it lends to the sense of, of leadership and, and who are you leading and where are you leading them to. The Pharisees were clearly leading people in the wrong direction not listening to God's word. And Jesus says to his disciples, if you lead people down the wrong path, this is the kind of torment that awaits you. And so how do you avoid that? He goes into that here. Uh, part of it is verse three, pay attention to yourselves and, and let your heart and let others know of this warning so that they can av- avoid this fate and teach others to avoid it as well. Or in other words, to summarize it all up, these people, you and me, need to believe in the reality of hell. We need to understand the warning of judgment against sin. And don't make the assumption that because all is fine right now, that means everything will be fine in the future. Consider the rich man in this story of chapter 16, He probably felt pretty good every day. Maybe he was even thankful to God every day because he was well off. Allow the future to shape your current reality and don't ignore it. So this warning is for all. This warning is a warning of torment. And then this brings us to our final point which is heeding that warning, which is living by faith. These, uh, these terrible images and warnings in these two stories are for our benefit. That if you hear them, the reason to hear them is so that you can avoid them. It is not an inevitable conclusion for our lives. And Jesus, in each of these stories, shows us how to avoid that faith or fate, which is living by faith. So I have two applications from each of these stories. Or I'm sorry, two applications, one from each story. The first application is to believe in Jesus's sacrifice and to repent. If you look at the rich man and poor man's story, the rich man nails it. When he is in, in torment, 
And he says in verse 30, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That is the key. (laughs) Believing in someone who has come back from the dead and repenting. He got it right. Jesus wants his audience to see that he is the one. I mean, he's clearly alluding to his own resurrection here in the story. He is the one who came back from the dead. And, And not only is he there to warn people of this fate, but he is there to provide and prove that he has provided the way of escape. See, Jesus, the reason why he came and died for sin and take on this judgment, the judgment of the rich man, the judgment of you and me that we deserve, so that we could be forgiven. And as we turn to him, as we believe in him, the one who was resurrected, who came back to life, who proved that death can be beaten, that life can be freely given to those who follow him. This is the choice that we have. Today is the day of salvation. So believe in Jesus and repent. Give up your old life and take the life that he gives you so that you can avoid this terrible fate, this eternal destiny. Choose to believe in Jesus so that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings and you could be free from the penalty of sin. That is the first and greatest application. The second application comes from chapter 17, which is that we need to change our perspective. And operating in faith allows us to do this. So in chapter 17 here, Jesus again talking to his disciples. And there are two examples that I think he uses to highlight that they need to have a perspective of faith. The first one is in verse three and four. And it's this picture of when someone repeatedly sins against you or you don't do anything about the sin. It just doesn't bother you. But consider the one where someone repeatedly sins against you and it hurts. Now think about this, if this has ever happened to you. Someone sins against you. And they come to you and say, please forgive me. Good. You say, yes, I forgive you. You get over it. Maybe time passes. You forget about it. But then they do it again. And then they do it again. And they do it again. And you're wondering, okay, I keep forgiving them. But like, there's a limit to this. Like this person is never seeming to learn the lesson. And you are in danger. You are tempted to end up in the place where you believe they do not deserve forgiveness for what they have done. And if this is you, and this is your perspective, you are in danger. Verse 2. Jesus says, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. Now, why is this? Why are you in danger of this, of hell and in danger of, of, of something that's, that's worse than this picture here in verse two? Well, it happens, I would say, at the end of this section, verse seven to 10. Jesus helps explain why. 
he gives this story that you you wouldn't rhetorical question you wouldn't do this if you had a servant the servant is there to serve and he does whatever the master says i mean the master has the authority the master has the power he's the one who's really in charge and so at the end of the day what should your perspective be verse 10 jesus says You're to do what you're commanded, and you are to have the perspective. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. So why does withholding forgiveness put you in danger of hell? It is because you don't understand at the core that that person that you are upset about who doesn't deserve it, because they've done it sin too many times. That's you. You're that person. If you want to avoid hell, you have to realize you are worse off than you think you are. And you don't deserve a lick of heaven, a drop of water from heaven. You deserve hell for sin. You are an unworthy person. And so Jesus wants his disciples to get it in their heads. This is the frame of reference. This is the perspective that you enter in with and you live by. And like I said in the first application, this drives us to Jesus, to live by faith and to repent of sin and follow him and his word. And, and know that we can go to him for forgiveness and that he will never say to us, oh, uh, that's one too many times that I'm going to offer forgiveness. We are unworthy servants. We do not deserve to get this wonderful gift that Jesus offers. We deserve to be punished for our sin and our misdeeds, not get the blessings that he gives. This is why John 3.16 is the most recognized verse in the world, because it summarizes all of this in one sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How do we apply all of these things? Jesus says it right here in chapter 17 to pay attention to yourselves. Examine your own heart. Verses three through four are helpful, uh, helpful to me as I think through applying this. Consider, have you humbly helped your brother or sister see sin in them and see their sinful wayward ways? And have you done anything about it? Have you, have you told them about the warning that Jesus gives here? And have you told them about the way to avoid it? Have you forgiven those who have sinned against you? Even if it has been repeated, even if it has been a deep wound in your heart, have you forgiven them? See, the power to do this doesn't come from uh, well-wishing or good feelings uh, or sweeping it under the rug or societal pressure or Christian church pressure. 
it comes only from one place ultimately, and that is the gospel. You deserve worse than you think, but Jesus died for sin so that you could be free and, and blissfully enjoy this new freedom and listen to him and serve him. This is the miracle of all miracles. You know, in, in this story, we didn't even cover it. We don't have time, but in verse five and six, Jesus says, hey, look, there's this miracle available to you. You can even say to this mulberry tree, uh, be uprooted and thrown yourself into the water. Like, how is that even going to work? And, and how is the tree going to survive that? Jesus says, by faith, it will happen. So you must believe it. So maybe you're struggling with sin and, and condemnation. You must live by faith. The impossible is possible in Jesus. So finally, we do need all of us to heed the warning of hell, to believe in Jesus and do what he says. Maybe you've heard people say, uh, you know, I find myself, I'm laughing because I find myself having this own reaction, but you, you might see somebody be like a little too radical, like I'm saved, I'm saved, hallelujah. And I'm like, well, a little bit, that's a little bit too much of a reaction. Come on, people. If we're honest, I'm revealing my own heart here. Maybe you think that's strange. Maybe you think that's a little weird. But I hope reading this story, hearing this message, that you understand why someone would respond that way. As I've been preparing for this message over the last couple of weeks, when it's right in front of your face, I'm just crushed and, and running to Jesus as fast as I can. Jesus, save me. You came back from the dead, not only to warn us, but to give us the answer that our hearts have been longing for this whole time. You've given us a clear path to life. Help me, help us to walk in it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. We do not deserve it. What a party it will be in heaven when we see the rescue more clearly. We, we get a sense for how dire a situation that we are in. We don't even see it fully. And so we'll see even more fully the rescue. But right now, God, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would constantly heed this warning, living by faith, living uh, by the joy and the forgiveness that you offer. Help us, Grace Fellowship, to be a church that cares for one another, watches out for one another, that in any way, shape, or form, we do not cause any little one to sin or to be tempted to sin. Please help us to be a community that lives and breathes the gospel that is not afraid to talk about hell, to talk about the warning that you give. 
Help us not to put hell and, and, and the judgment to come on a disputable matter list of our own hearts. Help us to see Jesus clearly. And God, we pray and long for the time where we can gather together in person without the restrictions like we used to. But we know that this season that we're in, we are in for a reason. So we trust in you to provide for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.